You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. So a question for you all. What is it that fascinates you? Have you ever considered that mostly what fascinates you are other people? They may be artists, actors, spouses, children, random strangers who do things that seem odd, but fascinating. Humans of New York's Instagram account has nearly 12 million followers. The famed website, or perhaps the infamous website, The People of Walmart, uh, has been running strong for 21 years. We are fascinated by people. Even in the advertisement world, you will be drawn to a certain product if that product is attached to a face. It is somewhat alluring and draws you in because people are fascinating. Heck, the reason that TikTok is such a craze is because people, normal and ordinary people, do really fascinating things like dance, apparently, uh, impersonate, provide humor. If you're on TikTok, it is because you have a fascination with people. And for some of you, it's athletes, others it's chefs, others it's art. Some of you are into a very specific genre of music that the rest of us have never heard of because they fascinate you by the way they write and compose and perform. We all have imaginations and they are easily captured by people. So who is it or what is it that captures your imagination? And then maybe step a fir- step, take a step further. What actually inspires awe? within you. There are things that we experience in life that bring us a lot of joy, and then there are things we experience in life that evoke awe. The probing question for us is, where does Jesus fall on the list of things we're awed by? Johannes Hartel is a German writer and author, and he says this, awe is the beginning of Christianity. In the beginning, there was no institution. There were no rules, not even any fixed teaching. In the beginning, there was an encounter. Such a disturbing encounter that it took the newborn church centuries of rubbing its amazed eyes to truly realize what had just happened to it. Awe at being with God, at seeing God do wonderful and fearful things. And a life of fascination that led to wonder and awe. So are we a people... Are you a person who is marked by endless wonder at Jesus? I sense that perhaps many of us have forgotten how to feel the wonder and awe of God in the person of Jesus. Because let's just be honest, we have very busy lives. I mean, Jesus plays a role in our lives. I mean, he is involved for sure, but he's he's playing a supporting role where there are a lot of actors and he may or may not make every scene We have jobs and kids and a mortgage payment and adventure and responsibilities and my own stuff I've got to work through. Life is a lot. We are fascinated by political and economic skirmishes. We are enthralled by many things. Quite frankly, a lot of stuff fascinates us. So we just don't have a lot of time to contemplate this Middle Eastern rabbi who lived thousands of years ago who sometimes we feel has little to no impact on our lives. And I don't know where you're at on your journey with Jesus, but if you are breathing and you are human, I imagine it's a lot of up and a lot of down. 
It's like high highs, low lows. Sometimes it's resurrection and crucifixion in the same day. And that is real and that is normal. And yet God in his kindness just keeps drawing us back in. And our challenge is we live in an overworked, performance-driven, do-enough world. And that mentality covers how we relate to Jesus. And one of the areas that I personally have felt the conviction of the Spirit is that mission for Jesus without being overcome by Jesus is another pseudo-religion masking itself as the real thing. Where is our contemplation of Jesus? And to say it another way, where is our obsession of Jesus. And relearning what it means to be awed in wonder and amazement at God will be our salvation and our healing, and that will be the propelling nature of mission. If we are not constantly reshifting our eyes onto Jesus, we will either become arrogant in our posture or burned out in our effort. We will not be people who will be made deeper by suffering, we will be made bitter by it. And we won't be people doing something risky and dangerous for the kingdom. Rather, we'll just play it safe. And we won't be people who willingly give up our lives because we have not been overcome by the one who willingly gave up his. And we will not be people who are generous and even scandalous with forgiveness, much less our time and our money, because we haven't truly been captured by the fact that God's heart is bent toward mercy. And thus we have not received it for ourselves. When putting mission for Jesus in front of being overcome by him, we end up doing some things that God, we end up doing some things for God that leave us frustrated and burned out because doing something for God feels easier than opening ourselves to God. I don't want to be a church that does a lot for God. I want us to be a church who is so enamored by God that we become like him. And out of that becoming, we just naturally do. It's not that we merely do generous things. It's that we are a generous people. It's not that we are driven by guilt to share Jesus, but actually driven by love. And it's not that we have one hobby horse of justice, but that we are a just people. It's about beholding God in front of our eyes and holding him close to the intimate parts of our hearts so that we might become like him. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. And we all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The Spirit of God is transforming us into what it means to be fully human, i.e. Jesus. And the starting, middle, and end place of that becoming is beholding. Jesus is the beginning and the end. He doesn't need us to do things for him. He breathed, and there were golden retrievers, ripe peaches, blue whales, and redwood trees. He doesn't need you. He's not impressed with you. And yet the scandal is he actually wants us. And out of the desire that he has for us, we then desire him. And out of that desire, 
comes joy and energy to pick a fight with the enemy in our city. Mission is the inevitable outcome and collateral damage of intimacy. Mission is the inevitable outcome and the collateral damage of intimacy. And so over the summer, we are going to look at the nexus of history, which is the person of Jesus, who we are invited to by the author of Hebrews to fix our eyes on. And we are actually going to do it through the eyes of John, where we take six of the statements that Jesus says about himself and trace their theme from the start of the Bible to their fulfillment in Jesus. And my hope is that we would begin to stare at Jesus long enough to where our hearts start to flame up with energy and our neighbors and our co-workers and our friends may not believe what we have to say, but they cannot deny that we have met with God. There is nothing cavalier about being overcome by Jesus. He is someone that we give our whole life over to and then follow him on the journey of wonder and love and worship and justice. And we start with one of the most notable images throughout Christian history and Jewish heritage, and that is of a lamb. Now, the overarching reality of the story of the world is God choice to be with us. It's what we all want. It's how the story starts. God walks in the garden in the cool afternoon with man and woman. The presence of God dwelling with people and people wondrously lost in his presence. God made us to say something about himself, but he also made us to enjoy his presence. This is the start of the entire story and the thread from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. But you don't have to flip too far in Genesis before you stumble upon the initiating event that creates a chasm between that presence. And whether you read Genesis 1 through 3 literally or you read it poetically... You must reckon with two realities. One, that the sin committed against God is the underlying desire to be God. And two, that grievous sin led to the exposure of us before God, which led to shame, which led to being exiled from the garden, but not before clothes were provided. And the Lord God made Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. I imagine we probably run over this verse most of the time, but this is the hinge point and the reminder that God is not through with them. And instead of God blowing them up and starting over, he wraps them in clothes, most likely the foreshadowing of the clothes of a skin of an animal to cover them. And he removes them from the garden without removing them from earth. And that alone is scandalous. Turn the page to Genesis 4 and we read in the course of time Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. Here again the foreshadowing of a system of sacrifices that would make up the people of God where Abel brings the very best Of his animals, the young, the healthy, and the promising of a future. And if you live in an agrarian society, this is the best you've got. 
And those animals, the living, breathing animals with blood coursing through its body must be killed as an offering to God. Flip over to Genesis 8. The world has gone to complete anarchy. Humanity is eating itself alive. Violence is on a constant loop. Tyranny is on the rise and the earth is ripping apart at the seams. Very similar to today. And God winds up flooding it, sparing Noah and his family. And the first thing Noah does upon landing on dry ground is to build an altar for a sacrifice. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. A sacrifice that pleases God, an aroma, a scent that rises to the heavens, both of devotion and awe and gratitude and joy. Fast forward to arguably the most shocking chapter in the entire Bible, Genesis 22. Abraham, the patriarch of the Jewish faith, is asked by God himself to make a sacrifice. The catch is, he's going to sacrifice a little boy. His little boy. And if you read the Bible, like a lot of us tend to read it, which is like a rule book or a guidebook, then this is outrageous and scandalous and you should probably burn the Bible up. But the Bible is not a rule book. The Bible is a testimonial. It is actually the Spirit's testimonial to the Son. And if you remember the story of Abraham, he is married to Sarah who is told by God in her mid-80s you're going to give birth. And it's laughable then and it's laughable now. And yet here is God laughing at their disbelief. And God provides a son, Isaac, whose offspring will save and bless the world according to Genesis 12. And once God does the unthinkable in providing the son, he asks the unthinkable to sacrifice that son. And this sacrifice, this offering was called a burnt offering, which is unique from all other offerings because it's the only sacrifice in which the entire animal is burned on the altar. The total consecration of worship before God and it made atonement, meaning it was offered as a payment for a ransom where an offender who might be otherwise facing the death penalty was let off by this type of offering. Now, the story is unique for many reasons, not the least of which is that Abraham, the father, leads Isaac, the son, up a hill carrying wood on his back to be a sacrificial offering on the Mount of Moriah, which most of us don't care one lick about until you realize that Mount Moriah is the same mountain where the temple will be built in Jerusalem. And right as Abraham is about to cut his son in two, the angel of the Lord steps in and spares Isaac a sacrificial death. And Abraham, the tragedy of taking his own son's life. And instead of Isaac, a ram is provided. And here's what the Lord says. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, 
Behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Skip over to Exodus. The people of God are enslaved by the Egyptians and plague after plague is wrecking the country only for Pharaoh to attempt to overrule God through strong arming his might. That is until God goes to great lengths for the people of Israel and in one concrete act declares salvation over the people of Israel and judgment over the Egyptians. How? Death by a lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. It is simultaneously a rescue mission of God's children and a victorious defeat over God's enemies. And this would become the regular celebration known as the Passover, where the same time every year the Jewish people would remember both their salvation and God's victory, where the angel of death literally passed over the people of God. Because of the blood that was painted over their doorpost, a lamb was given, a feast was enjoyed, a people were saved, and an enemy was defeated. And then you flip over to the next book, Leviticus. Most of us, if we attempt even to read this book, either attempt to read it really fast because we can't square all that's happening, we get confused because it feels so foreign to us, or feel guilty because we have misunderstood and misapplied what's written. Remember, there are thousands and thousands of stories in this book, but it's also one story. A testimony by the Spirit of the Son. And throughout Leviticus, we get the instructions of how the Israelites were to approach God and the sacrifices that would cover Israel and her sin. The burnt offering, which was twice a day offered, an animal is consumed by fire. The entire animal. No one eats the meat. It is purely a recognition that a valuable animal, the most valuable one in the flock, gets devoted to God. The grain offering, fine flour, frankincense, oil, salt, which express gratitude to God, asking God to bless and provide favor on them. The peace fellowship offering was what we, what we talked about a lot last year. It was more than merely a sacrifice. It was a meal shared by God the priest, and the family who brought the sacrifice. And this sacrifice was offered to cleanse the entirety of filth that sin creates. Here's what it says. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the, before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting. And all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering. That is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So the emphasis here is that you walk into the temple and all you see is blood. It's poured out. It's on the veil. It's on the horns of the altar. Sin has touched everything, which means the only way this sacrifice is going to take 
is if its blood touches everything. Then there is the guilt offering. This isn't so much of the guilt like we think of guilt. We think of guilt as in like our conscience feels guilty. Uh, This is more of a matter of someone who owes something to someone else. Um, uh, Consider uh, a robbery, for instance. This is when you would provide a guilt offering. And the purpose of this offering was to make reparations for one's sin. This offering even had a monetary value attached to it of about 20%. Now, most of us don't like the idea of watching someone or something die. If you have ever seen an animal die the size of you, it has probably done something to you. Heck, if bees or flies or ants were the size of humans, I imagine our psyche would have a much more difficult time taking its life. I mean, even now in the West, we have various agencies like PETA that seek to protect all sorts of wildlife and animals, and maybe for good reason. But if I brought an animal up here, and it was squirreling around, and you saw a massive knife in my hand, and I was going to slit the throat of this animal in front of all of you, each one of you would turn away. And honestly, I probably would too. Why? Because for those of us who have not grown up in the custom of animal slaughter, there is something jarring and unnerving about witnessing the life, literally the blood, being drained out of an animal. But for Jewish people, it was normal. Growing up, you you were used to seeing an innocent animal slaughtered and killed. And it gets ingrained into your mind, right? This lamb, this goat, this bull, this ram will die. And honestly, for many of us, the sacrificial system feels both outdated and a little bit of a burden. But listen to how Nancy Guthrie puts this. Imagine the expense of taking the best animal in your herd down to the temple in Jerusalem just to be burned up. That was the animal that would have produced the best offspring. And it wasn't easy to give up. Imagine the time burden, especially if you didn't live in Jerusalem. You would have to travel and find a place to stay. Imagine the emotional or spiritual burden as you made this trek, knowing that you would have to identify and confess your sin to the priest and offering your sacrifice. But also imagine the burden rolling away when you slit that animal's throat and watched it burn and the priest declared your sin forgiven. Imagine the sense of relief you would feel. You would think it should be me. I am actually the one who deserves to die, but this innocent animal has become my substitute. This animal has died so I can live. This was good news. The reason why Paul, I'm sorry, the reason why Jewish people were so furious at Paul for much of his traversing of the world was was because the claim he was making was that God became The man who became the sacrifice on the altar to be burned up. God gets slaughtered on the altar. And if we're not careful, we miss the central point the whole story hangs on. It says Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We look at the life of Jesus. We look at the resurrection of Jesus. But we cannot unsee the death of Jesus because it is the culmination of each of the examples that I just gave. 
Jesus is the skin that covers our shame when we are exposed before God. Romans 10, 11. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Jesus is the sacrifice after the flood, an aroma that is pleasing to God. Ephesians 5, 2. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, the pure offspring of Abraham, the one who is the beloved son, led by his father, carrying wood on his back on a hill near Jerusalem to become the son that was not spared. He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not also give us all things? Jesus is the Passover lamb in that one single act on the cross. He both saves us from our sin and disrobes and defeats his three enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The Passover lamb was not just about the salvation of Israelites. It was also about the defeat of the Egyptians. Similarly, the cross is both about our salvation and Jesus' victory. It's about the fact that we have been saved from the outside world and we've been saved from what's eating us inside. Paul writes in Romans that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then he writes in Ephesians that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but a fight against cosmic powers. So when you see gun violence every day as you read the news, it's not merely gun violence. It's demonic activity. Colossians 2.15 says that through his own death, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus is also the Passover lamb, the one who covers us with his blood so that the judgment of God might not land on us. But on him. And now, in celebration, we gather around a table and feast and laugh and are provided an exit strategy from the deep desires to be our own God. And Paul makes the connection to the church at Corinth when he says, For Jesus, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. If you read the entire book of Hebrew, it is just comparing Jesus to every temple sacrifice. In the, in the temple. So in Hebrews 10, 12, it says, But when Jesus had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies will be made a footstool under his feet. As a king in the New Testament, if you sat down, that meant that the work was over. It was a signal. If you stand It's still unfinished. Sitting down means it is finished. Hebrews 1.3 says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Romans 5.1 Who is the one who has made peace with God? It is, in fact, God the Son himself. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus. And I am barely scratching the surface. It's endless wonder. And here's what absolutely blew me up this week. Jesus is described as both a lion and a lamb in the scripture. Satan 
is described as a lion seeking to devour. And if you read Revelation, but he's, not, he's never described as a lamb. And if you read Revelation, you split the book in half. The last half of the book, Jesus is only described as a lamb. This is Revelation. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the, into the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth and then I looked and I heard around the throne and living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature. Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the land be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And then in Revelation 21 it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So we end where we started. Us being with God, God being with us. This is the point of Christianity, by the way. We need a proper theology of what does it mean for God to dwell with his people. And we must not discount that at the end of time, our theology will be all explained because we will literally see him face to face. And I love the fact that John, the first words on the page of John 1 are not behave, they're not become even, they're actually behold. Because you will not become until you behold, and you will not do until you become that which you have beholden. And our mission is to first receive this news because that is what it is. It is news, and it is more than good. And we become so overwhelmed by the announcement that God has made a way for us to enter his presence that our prayer would be that it would spill off into the banks of the city. And the anthem over our life would be the psalmist's words, the earth will be full of the steadfast love of God. listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.